You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Okay, perhaps we can uh, get started. And um, so again, good morning or good evening, everyone. Um, and this is the second seminar of the series in Pakistan Transitional Justice, hosted by the Amsterdam Center for International Law and the Institute for International Law and Humanities of uh, Melbourne Law School. My name is Eliana Cusato, and I am a Marie Curie postdoctoral fellow at the Amsterdam Center for International Law. I want to start by acknowledging that one of the host institutions for this event, the University of Melbourne, stands on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin nations and their sovereignty over that land has never been ceded. So we pay our respects to the elders both past, present and emerging. And as today we will be speaking of questions of justice and human rights, it's important to foreground also questions of indigenous justice and sovereignty. So welcome again to seminar two of the series Unpacking Transitional Justice, International Law, Memory and Power. This series, as you might know, is the product of uh, uh, friendship and academic collaboration between me and Valeria Vasquez Guevara from Melbourne Law School. Uh, before introducing the two fabulous speakers that are with us today, I would like to say a few words about um, the, the series. So for those of you who join us for the first time, the aim of the series is to bring together scholars from around the world, employing interdisciplinary and a variety of critical approaches to the study of transitional justice and international law, broadly understood. So the relationship between uh, international law and societies in transition has been subject to increased scholarly attention over the past years. So by exploring how international law, memory and power interact in current responses to the violence of the past, the series intends to push the conversation forward as well as build new research networks and agendas. So we had our initial uh, inaugural seminar a month ago, which was kindly chaired by Professor Sandhya Pauja from Melbourne Law School. The theme we explored in our first seminar was truth, facts and post-conflict state building. Uh, today's topic is community, culture, identities, and memories. So before giving the floor to Valeria, who will chair this uh, session, I wish to thank on behalf of both of us, the Institute for International Law and Humanities at Melbourne Law School, and particularly Sandia Pauja and Connor Foley, and the Amsterdam Center for International Law, and especially Ingo Wenske for their support. And of course, uh, today's wonderful speakers for agreeing to participate. Uh, to our seminar, uh, professors, uh, Professor Luca Lichinski and Dr. Maria Elander. So I will hand over to Valeria now to properly introduce today's seminar and our speaker. Thank you, Eliana. Um, so before I introduce um, Professor Lukas Lichinski and Dr. Maria Elander, um, so just a bit of a background. So this second seminar, as you've seen, is titled Community, Culture, Identities and Memories and focuses on how transitional justice institutions and international law shape post-conflict societies by giving meaning or organizing in particular ways the meanings of culture, cultural heritage, and images of victimhood and victims, broadly speaking. The next seminars, seminars three and four, which will run from, um, from May to June, will again bring um, prominent scholars uh, from around the world to 
cover key topics um, of transitional justice. So seminar three, as you've seen, is titled Justice and it's about political economy. And we'll have um, Christine Shobo Patel from the University of Warwick in the UK with um, Hannah Fransky from the University of Bremen. Seminar four in June is titled Reconciliation, Reparations and Beyond. And this one will bring three um, speakers, um, Oishik Sirkar from Jindal uh, University in Delhi, India. Sarah Kendall um, from the University of Kent in the UK and Chris Gibbers from the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa. And now finally, um, we're really excited and really grateful um, for um, both of our speakers to be here with us to share their amazing work. Um, so we have here with us Dr. Lukas Lishinsky. He is a professor at the Faculty of Law and Justice at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. He writes and researches um, primarily in international law with a particular focus on international cultural heritage law and human rights law. He is Rapporteur of the International Law Association Committee on Participation in Global Cultural Heritage Governance, and he's also Vice President of the Conference of the Association of Cultural Heritage, um, sorry, Critical Heritage Studies, and it's also the Editor-in-Chief of the Australian Journal of Human Rights. His latest book is titled Legalized Identities, Cultural Heritage Law and, Shape, and the Shaping of Transitional Justice, which has just come out with Cambridge University Press and I can't wait to read and I highly recommend. We have also here with us Dr. Maria Elander, who is a senior lecturer at La Trobe University Faculty of Law. Her research is primarily in the broader field of international criminal justice and engages with theories in cultural and feminist legal studies. Her work examines questions of representations and its limits, and she pays close attention to victimhood, gender, and the visual. Maria's um, monograph, Figuring Victims in International Criminal Justice, um, was published in 2018 with Routledge, and it's a terrific book with a very sophisticated analysis. Um, and a testament to that, she won the uh, 2019 ECR Penny Pether um, Prize, which is awarded by the law um, Law Literature Humanities Association of Australasia. So we are gonna leave you with two terrific um, scholars. And I think Professor Lukas Lushinsky will, will start the conversation. So the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you Valeria and Eliana for an invitation. Thank you Maria for being here with the, uh, for the journey. And thanks everyone who's in attendance and who will be uh, listening to this uh, podcast later. Um, it's really a treat to be here to talk about this project that uh, is a bit of a, a, a passion project for me and uh, which has um, uh, just come to fruition uh, despite some uh, false starts, but that's a different conversation. Um, so let's just get into it. Um, so the topic of, or the thing I want to talk about to you today is essentially the title of the book, Legalized Identities, Cultural Heritage Law and the Shaping of Transitional Justice. And the uh, the, the basic argument in this book is that, you know, we have these two fields of transitional justice and cultural heritage law, which share a few characteristics. Uh, they're both expert-driven fields. They tend to be fairly legalistic. Um, they, they, they have a purported neutrality, quote unquote, uh, and they tend to look at the past in the present in order to shape a future. Um, and my goal with this project uh, is to unsettle this idea of anti-impunity as a key driver of transitional justice in particular, and to frame heritage as a bounded and authorized 
uh, field, or at least it is more bounded and authorized than people can assume it to be, right? So the field of transitional justice tends to assume that memory and culture emerge organically from the ground up, uh, which is true um, some of the time, but not all of the time, right? There's also a lot of law that shapes what kind of identity, what kind of culture, what kind of memory is possible within a transitional justice context. And that comes from the top-down, uh, very intentional choices by um, states. Considering all this context, what I want to argue today is that even though both the fields of transitional justice and heritage law share this impulse towards technicization and this idea of abstract and principal decision-making, uh, when you bring them together, you actually end up with uh, creating a lot of room for very pragmatic engagements and for reimagining the boundaries of both fields, uh, hence the shaping. Uh, the, the field of international heritage law or cultural heritage law more broadly, both domestic and international, tends to be grounded on this idea of protecting and preserving heritage or what I call the conservation paradigm, uh, which is a slightly more legalistic or law specific take on uh, Laura Jane Smith's authorized heritage discourse. Um, and the idea behind the conservation paradigm um, is that heritage, once it is recognized by the law as such, as having the quote unquote value of heritage, it can never be changed, it can never be destroyed, uh, it can never be resignified. So it's just there forever. Um, and the idea is that we tend to hang on to uh, heritage as um, some relic of history, or we tend to assign to heritage the value of history, uh, and therefore to change heritage would be to change history, um, which is a lie. Uh, and we can get into that uh, later in Q&A, but essentially the idea is that, you know, heritage is not about the past, right? It's something we choose from the past and uh, in the present and project onto the future. So heritage is much more forward looking than people, particularly in law, tend to assume it is. Um, uh, and, and of course, this conversation is not new or original uh, to the point where the conservation paradigm has increasingly been subject uh, to the sentiment of communities that live in, with, in, or around heritage, uh, who tend to be excluded from heritage management processes by the law, uh, but that's a different book. Um, so just take my word uh, on it for now. Uh, and, um, and because of this exclusion, uh, they, uh, heritage, again, reinforces itself for its own sake, right? Uh, and, uh, and that's can be self-defeating because if you exclude the one actor that is gonna keep heritage alive uh, by interacting with it on a daily basis, then of course, uh, heritage is likely to disappear over time. Yes, we need to bring communities into the fold, but who is the community of difficult heritage or dissonant heritage or negative heritage, which are the words we use to associate uh, heritage and traditional justice? That's a really complicated question. Um, and the issue of Confederate monuments in the US which is what you have on the slide, uh, kind of brings that to the fore a little bit. Um, and, and, and essentially brings forth the idea of balancing community sentiment and coordinating them. And the conservation paradigm tends to ignore that sentiment and just say that, look, yes, um, whatever the, sent, the prevailing sentiment was at the moment of listing, that's the one we're gonna go with and we're gonna, not gonna revisit those decisions. And of course, in transitioning societies, uh, that is not only 
incongruent. It is also strategically or tactically really, really stupid. Um, and, and what, what I want to focus on uh, today for, for the purpose of this uh, conversation is on atrocity museums and archives as to types of heritage or to use UNESCO parlance domains of heritage um, in which transitional justice uh, issues play out. Uh, so atrocity museums and archives tend to function across all major mechanisms of traditional justice. Uh, primarily, they uh, work as a means of truth, right? They embody a narrative of the past, um, but the very construction of, of these uh, museums uh, can be a measure of reparation and also sends a very powerful never again message, which is essentially what a guarantee of non-repetition is, or that's how I read it anyway. Um, and increasingly, um, archives in particular have been used very specifically in justice and accountability kind of efforts. Uh, and we'll get to those in a second. But justice and accountability is not the primary thrust of cultural heritage in general, uh, and specifically of atrocity museums and archives is just kind of an incidental use uh, because of that truth element. Um, it's the bearing of testimony about the past. Um, and uh, the law plays into this because of course, uh, museums and archives are bounded by the law that creates and funds these institutions and also the law that determines how these institutions operate, everything from what type of collection they can have down to rules on accessioning and deaccessioning of collections. Now, museums in general uh, have evolved quite a bit over time, uh, and, and I'm here taking a, a lot of work from Jennifer Orange on the evolution of human rights museums in particular. Um, and it's this idea that the traditional museum um, as the receptacle of the past uh, has kind of given way to this idea of the museum as an actor in the present that is actually meant to interact with the community and project something onto that community about what that community uh, should aspire to be, as it were, right? So it, it's kind of dropping this pretense that the museum is a neutral repository of the past and saying, no, it, it is an actor, a cultural and social actor engaging in today, engaging in reality, and we should just embrace that position um, because if we just uh, turn a blind eye uh, to that power, someone else is going to use it for us. Um, so the, the, in the sense, uh, the museum ends up as, a, as an incidental recipient of the law, uh, because the law, again, it regulates the background operation of, of the museum, uh, or it, it regulates the artifacts, right? Uh, but there's relatively little about how the museum works within its own domains uh, as a matter of uh, domestic or international law. Um, so it, it's really at those extremes, the items in the collection or the funding of cultural institutions and cultural policy more general, that the law really has a role. Uh, it tends to treat the museum as something a bit separate, um, which allows the museum to have a certain freedom, uh, but at the same time, it's not totally unconstrained, right? Because you have those uh, things at either end. Uh, but UNESCO tends to leave the museum as an institution behind precisely because of its focus on the objects rather than the institution. Um, nevertheless, the museum, uh, museums in general, uh, perform important roles in narrating the past. But there are a few themes that are really important to consider when we think about the ways museums narrate the past, particularly in transitional co contexts, um, which are this idea of victimization, um, and of trying to locate external causes of atrocity, you're locating enemies, quote unquote, 
which again feeds directly into victimization uh, and this idea of authoring, which makes us question the role of the museum as truth. So I'm throwing a lot of big words and abstract concepts. Uh, how does that actually operate in practice? Um, so I just quickly wanna show you what the main international cultural heritage law instrument is in relation to museums. Um, it's the 1970 convention, which is about cultural objects, right? So the museum, again, is only incidental to it, uh, but it defines a whole array of different um, categories of things uh, that are protectable by heritage law. So it's not just the pretty uh, painting, it's not just the, 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 the interesting sculpture, um, it's things with ethnological interest, um, uh, uh, product of archaeological excavations, manuscripts, stamps, archives, even furniture and musical instruments. Um, objects of ethnological interest can be particularly relevant uh, in the intersection between cultural heritage and forensic anthropology, uh, and that's the regime around human corpses in particular, um, but that's a different conversation that we can talk about uh, a little later if people are interested, uh, or this idea of transitional justice as creating a divide between uh, science corpses and uh, tragedy corpses, as I, as I define them, uh, or as I label them in the book. Anyway, um, I want to talk about one specific example of a uh, atrocity museum, uh, which is Sodemun Prison in Seoul, South Korea, um, which is a great example of how uh, a sort of two-tier transition gets narrated. Um, so Sodomon prison was, well, a prison. Uh, first of all, it was a prison for dissidents during the Japanese occupation of the Korean peninsula, which lasted from 1910 to 1945. Um, and then uh, during the war, it also housed a, a number of um, prisoners of war. And then after uh, the war, uh, during the Korean War and for many, uh, several decades afterwards, it also housed um, dissidents of the Korean regime. But the main focus of the museum, and that's when we get this split between the different tiers of transition, is that it really focuses on Japanese occupation. So it's the ways in which uh, the South Korean people were victimized by a foreign oppressor, rather than the ways in which uh, South Korean people were victimized by a domestic oppressor. Um, so the, the, this focus of the narrative on Japanese occupation um, has led the museum to be part of a possible or a tentative uh, World Heritage Site, to use the UNESCO terminology, uh, which is the Japanese Second World War uh, prison sites, uh, which are spread primarily across uh, South Korea and China. Um, and that's in no small part um, a response to the inscription of the Hiroshima Peace, Peace Park um, onto the World Heritage List which China in particular protested vociferously by saying that it narrated uh, the Japan as only a victim or rather than its perpetrator um, or its lead perpetrator from an Asian uh, Pacific kind of context. So anyway, uh, so there, there is this connection to the, not only to the regime of museums and cultural objects, but also even to the World Heritage Convention. So another domain of international heritage law gets triggered here. Um, and the, the focus of this museum, like so many other atrocity museums around the world, um, is that it tells a, a, a truth, right? And because of that, it works as a guarantee of non-repetition. The, the Sodemon Prison Museum um, is right next to a little park that was created uh, many decades later that actually celebrates uh, 
the resilience and, and the cultural unity or the cultural resilience rather of the Korean people in the face of continued atrocity and oppression. Uh, so it has that message very uh, deeply woven through, um, but it's also um, essentially this narration of victimhood and even triumphalism, right? We overcame uh, this difficult past, but the story is narrated rather differently depending on who your audience is. So to world audiences, it's all about Japanese occupation um, to the point where uh, a survey was conducted of uh, visitors to the museum. Um, and, and, and it was one of the findings of that survey, that, that research was that uh, people were walking out of the museum with higher anti-Japanese sentiment than when they walked in. So in this sense, the museum kind of fails uh, in its dialogue creating or, uh, you know, um, transition building uh, mission uh, because it reinforces the, again, the victimhood of the Korean people. So that's kind of the main story and that's what's uh, sold to domestic and international visitors alike. And then there's this whole other wing of the prison complex, which is a different building um, that you, you kind of walk around to get to it, um, which is, um, uh, about the oppression of the Korean regime towards its own citizens in the aftermath of the Korean War. How do I know that it's only catered to Korean audiences? Uh, because everything inside that wing is only in Korean. Um, and the only reason I even learned what was going on there is because I happened to be with, um, uh, with someone who spoke Korean and could translate uh, those uh, signs, those, those narrations to me. Uh, so the, it, it is a very, I cannot think that, it, it, I cannot help but think that it's a very intentional move uh, to hide away this idea of uh, Korean on Korean kind of oppression from an international audience and instead privilege um, victimhood, right? Uh, because what cultural heritage law in many ways tends to facilitate is the privileging of victimhood narratives over perpetration narratives. Uh, in the way that these sites are selected and narrated. Um, so anyway, we end up with the selectivity uh, and contestation that is enabled through the mechanisms of legal protection that exist around the site. Um, and then another example I wanted to discuss um, is thinking not so much about atrocity museums, but thinking about archives as a form of cultural heritage. And I wanted to use the Guatemala National Police Archives as an example. Um, the, story or the history of these archives is beyond fascinating and weird. Uh, and I'm not gonna do it justice today, but uh, I'm happy to refer to other literature on the matter. Um, these archives were discovered in 2005. And I say discovered in quotation marks uh, because essentially what happened is that there was a minor explosion um, in an ammo depot of the Guatemalan army and then a wall crumbled and voila, these archives were behind that wall. So they had been sealed off uh, by the Guatemalan regime at the end of the civil war in Guatemala uh, with the intention that they would never actually be discovered. Uh, but they were found, they saw the light of day. And because um, the Guatemalan government denied the existence of these archives throughout the peace process uh, at the end of the civil war, um, they were not covered by the amnesty in the UN brokered uh, peace process in that country. So these archives become all of a sudden they become incredibly relevant because anything that is documented there can actually be prosecuted um, in Guatemalan and international courts potentially. 
so it's a huge aha moment for um, human rights activists in Guatemala and in the region. Um, all of a sudden, there's all this interest and, and, and resources being poured into the uh, archives to kind of make sense of them and, and, and preserve the, the documents, many of which were already moldy and disintegrating. Uh, but they're also very thorough, right? Because the, the Guatemalan police, for it, the many, many horrible things they did, they were actually very systematic and nerdy about it. So they documented all the bad things they did really, really well. Uh, so they were really important. Um, and the Guatemalan government at the time, the, the, those archives were discovered, was very supportive of it. But then Guatemalan politics started shifting uh, and people who were implicated in the archives all of a sudden were the front runners to become the next president of the country. Um, and then the people working on the archives and all the human rights advocates around it uh, became very apprehensive and they decided, okay, we need to make this bigger than Guatemala. And what they did, they turned to UNESCO and inscribed the archives in the Memory of the World program, which is a UNESCO initiative that essentially protects archives or uh, what they call documentary heritage around the world. Um, and it covers anything from the um, original files of the Mabo case in Australia um, to the Nanjing massacre uh, archives, uh, which is part of the complicated story among Korea, Japan, and China, uh, and heritageization of World War II, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, so anyway, uh, this memory of the world listing came into place. It helped elevate the archives in many ways and give it visibility and recognition uh, so that they wouldn't be destroyed. And part of what happened then as well is that it attracted all these funding for the digitization of the archives. But of course, they were still afraid that you can wipe out, you can destroy a hard drive perhaps even more easily than you can destroy documents. Um, so there was this um, push to create uh, safe digital copies or what we would call digital surrogates of those archives elsewhere. And the University of Texas was instrumental uh, in this respect. And now there's a digital copy of these archives at the University of Texas in Austin, uh, where people can actually consult those databases. Uh, and there was a lot of questions around privacy uh, and what names could be found and so on and so forth. These archives also very importantly have been mentioned both in domestic and international cases involving Guatemala. Um, the international cases being from the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, particularly the Diario Militar, the military journal uh, case. So uh, in terms of uh, bringing together the many threads I threw out here, um, heritage law and pragmatism, they, they kind of come together, Her uh, heritage and transitional justice come together uh, because heritage forces us to think beyond individualization. Um, and also it allows us to move past this idea of justice and accountability as the only valid transitional justice mechanism um, and um, facilitates the recovery of at least a version of the political through these contested narratives that can emerge. But the conservation paradigm still, of course, plays a major role in trying to uh, stymie uh, contested narratives. So th th there's work still to be done there. Um, and also we should be aware that those narratives tend to be very state-centric. They're focused on victimhood narratives and sometimes triumphalist narratives. Um, and we end up replacing the diplomacy of shame that has been so important in international human rights uh, movements with a diplomacy of pain which can be a lot less productive uh, in transitional contexts. Um, and we be partly because we also end up reenacting conflicts via the remnants of these conflicts um, in fairly unproductive ways. Um, 
because we tend to stick to those positions of victim and perpetrator um, and our political agendas and then end up being cloaked in this idea of sympathy uh, with the victims. Um, and that's it from me. I look forward to our discussion. Thank you, Lucas. That was really wonderful. Um, I have so, so many no notes. Um, so I'll just hold myself for, this, for the moment. Um, and now, um, Maria, the floor is yours. Thank you so much to Eliana and to Valeria for inviting me to this. Thanks to Ila and to the Amsterdam Center of International Law for, for hosting it. And thanks to Lucas for this really thought-provoking um, presentation. I, I wish that I were um, an attendee that could just ask questions instead of uh, turning to my own paper at this moment. But before I, I start with my paper, I want to begin by acknowledging that I am speaking as well um, from the lands of the Rundry people of the Kula Nation. And I pay my respect to their elders past, present, present and future. And I want to reiterate that these lands have never been ceded. So my talk today is going to be about the S21 photographs as records. And I think that this fits really well with what Lucas has spoken about so far, about archives and museums and their role in transitional justice processes and how we can think about them differently. And I'm going to start with a scandal that I think that many of you are aware of, but I'll just run through the contours of it um, to start us off. So Friday, the 9th of April, just a couple of weeks ago, Vice magazine published a feature article with, um, with self-taught Irish or Ireland-based artist uh, Matt Lowry about his project to restore and colorize images from former Khmer Rouge uh, Security Center S21, something that Vice described as humanizing that tragedy. According to Lowry, he had been contacted by, quote, a guy in Cambodia about restoring three photographs, one of which was his ID photograph from S21. Now that basis, he began colorizing more photographs. In response to a question, Lowry uh, spoke at length about his fascination with the smile of some of those who had been photographed. On Saturday, the day after, a photographer John Vink pointed out that the smiles in the photographs, at least that the ones that Vice had published, had been actually added. And the day after, on Sunday, uh, the Cambodian Ministry of Culture and Fine Arts condemned the project and the article stating that the work had seriously affected the dignity of the victims, the reality of Cambodia's history, and was in violation of the rights of the museum as the lawful owners and custodians of these photographs. Vice withdrew the article and several other media um, published articles with statements from two of the last survivors of the institution and with family members of direct victims about their dismay and their shock about these altercations. Now, there's a lot to say about the way that Lowry seemed to have a complete lack of understanding about the dignity or personality rights of those depicted. Um, and there's also much to say about Vice's claim that the photos somehow humanized the, the people as if they were not human enough already. But the way that I want to frame it is the way that it echoes another scandal just a couple of years ago in 2018, when it was revealed that two major stock or photo stock companies, Alamy and Sprague Photos, were selling photographs of the S21 photos. So photos they had taken of the photos of the S21. Mekong Review editor Minbo Jones questioned the legality and ethics of such practice and saying that nobody had copyright over these photographs. When this became public, Sprague Photos and Alamy quickly retracted, saying that they didn't know that it was uh, that the photographs were restricted 
And it turned out that their photographers had simply entered the Tool Sling Genocide Museum, which holds these photographs and taken photographs of these photographs. So in this seminar series then on unpacking transitional justice and this theme of community culture identities and memories, I begin with these examples to raise some questions about the role of the photos in and as archives of atrocity. How can we better understand the difficulty for the question about the rightful custodian and owner of atrocity images to settle, for instance? Who does own uh, atrocity records? And what is it about atrocity records, in this case photographs, that remain such in contestation 40 years after their creation? So in the last 15 minutes or so, I hope to do three things. I hope to provide some background to the creation of the S21 photographs. I will trace some of the appearances and uses of these photos. And I, will, I hope to show that the way that they have been framed has always been as if under threat and as if as and as contested. And I'm hoping that this will then turn to questions about ownership and custody over atrocity archives and about the relationship between what I call atrocity archives and transitional archives. Okay, so within archival studies, the question of provenance is paramount. Provenance refers to the origin or source of something or information regarding the origins. According to one approach to provenance, the origin would be the institution then that created the photograph, Democratic Kampuchean Security Center S21 and its workers and leadership. The contours of this regime are well known and I'll not repeat this here and the way that it ended with destruction and death. But S21 served at the apex of this elaborate security apparatus um, and was a site to which enemies or so-called enemies of the state were taken. And here prisoners were subjected to a process that mimicked police bureaucracy with the creation of files, including mugshots and identity details. And hence the image here on the slide of Bertillon who facilitated the, the systematization of the use of mugshots. But at S21, after extensive interrogation that always led to confession, the prisoners were killed. And there are only 12 of the some 15 to 18,000 prisoners uh, who survived their imprisonment. So it is at this moment that the mugshot is created as part of a twisted security apparatus in which the taking of the photographs are truly inscribing the criminality, the subject within criminality to riff off John Tang. When the Khmer Rouge were ousted from Phnom Penh in, 19, in January 1979, the new regime immediately saw the piles of records that had been left in haste at S21 as evidence of the criminality of the previous regime. Within weeks, S21 was transformed into a museum, a memorial and an archive over the atrocities. This was eventually named the Tool Slang Genocide Museum. From the start, it served an important purpose of evidencing to foreign visitors the crimes of the Khmer Rouge who remained a threat. And during the first month, museum staff rushed to um, collect some of the, or collect the 200,000 pages of documents that had been scattered across the premises. And this included photographs, false confessions, notes, prisoner list speeches, and much more. And in the chaos, obviously some of these records were lost but much was recaptured and reorganized into this tool sling archive. And so this new museum archive is thus not the same as the S21 archive. 
even as some of the records remain the same. They are differently organized here, they're differently captured, and certainly they're appropriated for different purposes than they were originally intended. And so this creation of the tool slang archives was from the start intended to evidence the crimes of the Pol Pot regime. The work was pertinent as the records would serve as a legal evidence in the People's Tribunal uh, held in August that year and as B museum display, also here evidencing the crimes of the Pol Pot regime. And already towards the end of 1979, at least some of the photographs um, uh, that have later been claimed to have discovered much later, already at the end of 1979, were they put on display at this museum. And in the early years, uh, the museum formed an important role in um, attracting uh, survivors to look for their relatives in the photographs. And so since they were created and since they were put on display, uh, the photos have moved across genres and institutions. Drawing on the work of Eric Catelar, Michelle Caswell, who's a prominent uh, writer on the Tulsling archives, conceptualizes the photos as objects with social lives, activated in a multitude of contexts where they construct meaning for particular groups of people at particular times and in particular realms. These activations future influence all future activations so that the future readings um, then of them are inherently bound uh, to their current and past activations. In other words, each time of display or of recapture and of reorganization, the photos are activated in a way that affects not just the future activations, but also the past ones. So for the purpose of looking at the past, let's look a little bit at these past activations. What we find is that there have been numerous preservation and conservation efforts ever since they were discovered uh, in 1979. And all of these have created new archives, the repositories of which are held not just at the Tulslang Museum. In 1991, Cornell University went through a microfilm copy project um, that produced two sets of microfilms, one held at Cornell and one at Tulslang. In 1993, the photo archive group uh, went through a cleaning and preservation uh, project where they cleaned the photo negatives. In 1995, Yale University Cambodia genocide program, which later became DCCAM, uh, also had a project that created a database that is now accessible on the Yale University website that focused on a few aspects of the, the tool slang archives. And much more late, more recently, in 2009, the archives were listed as part of the Memory of the World heritage listing um, that uh, Lucas mentioned earlier. And as part of this, uh, thousands upon thousands of records and documents have been preserved, most of which have also been digitized. And just a few months ago in 2021, the these digitized copies were made accessible via the Toolslang website um, with some restrictions on, on images and on records that are deemed uh, to be sensitive in relation to the dignity of the victims. And this has been undertaken in relation to and, and uh, together with a preservation effort at the museum itself. So in the last few years, much has happened at the Tulslang Genocide Museum with new audio tours, with new ex exhibitions, with new signage, um, and with new research being conducted alongside restoration and catalogization of previously untouched artifacts, such as, uh, as clothing. 
So as records, the photos have at each of these moments of preservation or preservation been organized into archives. A sense of urgency has always come together with this. Um, and this urgency has also been evident when they have been displayed. As photographs, they have been displayed uh, and exhibited wildly. Um, and as these, they have been exhibited with to, to produce, to demonstrate, to evidence certain uh, events and with certain affective qualities. Well, so let me just briefly mention a few of these. In the early 1980s, uh, American uh, former um, uh, director of Amnesty International, I believe, David Hawke, took photographs of the displays and exhibited his photograph as part of an exhibition called Cambodia Witness that was a display at the US House of Representatives. And this positioned the photograph in a context of legal and international activism. Um, the photos has, as mentioned, also been used as legal evidence, first at the People's, Tri People's Revolutionary Tribunal, and much more lately at uh, the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia, the ECCC, where they have been used uh, to evidence um, the criminal, or used in evidence in the cases against both Doik and in the case against Nguyen Chia. And so for those who are not familiar with the ECCC, this is the, the hybrid tribunal that was established through an agreement between the United Nations and the Cambodian government to hold to account uh, senior leaders and those most responsible for the crimes um, of the Khmer Rouge. So alongside these evidential capacity, the photographs have also been exhibited at institutions of art, and this has been much more controversial. So the photo archive group that I mentioned briefly, in exchange for their preservation and cleaning effort, they were granted the right to print, publish and present abroad 100 prints. They went on to publish a glossy uh, coffee table photo book called The Killing Fields in uh, 1996. And this went on to be exhibited in a numerous um, galleries across North America, Europe and Australia. And this association with art has been highly criticized. For instance, art critic Thierry de Deux, for instance, questioned whether the presentation of the photographs in an art gallery was granting legitimacy to the S21 photographer who had been part of the institutional machinery of S21, but that this was granting him legitimacy as an artist. So in a bizarre twist, one of the photographers has indeed claimed not just credit for his work, but also copyrights, but we can talk about that later. So moreover, in the publicity of these exhibitions, the photographs have been presented as not just restored, but actually discovered by the photo archive group. And this lends, as cultural geographer Rachel Hughes has argued, a certain heroism to the photo archive group and to the to photojournalism, which contrasts dramatically with the anti-heroism and victimhood of the S21 prisoners. And this further positions the photos like colonial spoils. And I think that this restore returns us to the questions of archive and of custody. So at each initiative of preservation or conservation and of display, these have all been driven by a desire to make them public and broadly available so that the atrocities are known. And this desire has been exacerbated by a sense of urgency that the photographs and other records are at risk. And so since the discovery in 1979, they've been represented as fragile, uh, threatened by time, lack of resources and of hostile interests. Initially, these threats, these hostile interests, were very much the real threats from the Pol Pot regime that were continued to make claims of power until the 1990s. 
But the photos have also been considered threatened by the regime of People's Republic of Kampuchea that took over in 1979, and which throughout the 1980s were deemed either a puppet of Vietnam or simply a new version um, of the Khmer Rouge. And so the photos and tool slang more broadly has been dismissed as either a Vietnamese propaganda or as inadequate and corrupt because people in the governmental position in the PRK and also today are, were members of the Khmer Rouge. And so I think that it is against these threats that the question of inalienability becomes so contested. Um, Inalienability, which is so hard to say, refers to the prohibition against the transfer or assignment of title and is used to justify the continuation of governmental records, uh, uh, governmental records uh, being kept in governmental repositories, sorry. In accordance with this principle, the S21 photographs were created as governmental records and needs to remain as such. But this principle has been questioned when it comes to records that were part of human rights abuses and where, I quote Michelle Caswell, where the transition to democracy is not yet complete. And so for Caswell, it is questionable whether records created under the Khmer Rouge should be kept in Cambodian national archives. And so this question about the suitable custodian of our atrocity records has also come to the fore in relation to the ECCC. And I'm aware that I'm jumping here, but bear with me. So after the completion of three large trials, the ECCC is likely to wind down uh, at any moment. Much of the documentation from the Khmer Rouge period were collected originally by the DC camp, by the NGO DC camp, and so have always remained in their repositories. But as an institution, the ECCC has also produced its own archives. So the interviews, the transcripts, their own investigations, uh, decisions, etc. But the question about where this archive is to be kept remains somewhat undecided. In 2015, the Legal Documentation Center uh, relating to the ECCC, LDC, was established to serve as a repository and facilitate public and research access to the trial documentation. And today it holds 7,000 files from case one of the ECCC. Yet the memorandum of understanding between the ECCC and LDC is limited to public documents, leaving unattended the question where all the non-public uh, material of the ECCC will be kept. There are also questions as to whether the LDC has actually been handed over all relevant files and also questions as to their resources. So we can discuss this further during the questions time, but here I want to point to how the question of ownership and control over this legal archives works at the intersection of the debates of international, national, of the role of archive and memory work and over uh, presentation of the photograph, uh, sorry, uh, law in transitions. So in an article about the ICTY archives, Kristen Campbell argues that the, that legal archive does not passively record memories, but instead actively constructs memory as an object in the present. And this allows her to argue for the concept of memorial law, which emphasizes memorial practices that can sustain the legal archive as a living memory rather than a dead archive. This emphasis on the archive as living memory is, I believe, also relevant for the S21 photographs and other tool slang records. So where does this bring us in relation to transitional justice? So I started off by using the term um, atrocity archives because of the context in which they were created, but also because I disagree with the very much uh, by the way that much transitional justice discourse operates in accordance with a linear temporality. 
And according to this temporality, the transitional justice institution is, in, is meant to enable a move forward or move on so that the society can heal and receive closure. And this would suggest that the display of the photographs wherever would promote healing or closure. But this is not the case and has never been the case, not in a legal context and certainly not in an art gallery. The photographs uh, seem to do something else. This notion of transition also works poorly in the context of Cambodia, where after years of legal proceedings and holding key figures of the Khmer Rouge to account has not promoted a liberal democracy. And so elsewhere, I've argued that this does not mean that the trials have been and the, in these proceedings have been moat, but rather that the transitional justice logic is. Now, recently, Julia Vibach argued for the conceptualization of what she calls transitional archives, a term she uses to emphasize their open-ended open nature, the in-becoming of the archives. Similarly, troubled by the emphasis on closure in transitional justice, Vibach instead focuses on the afterlife of records. Now, this allows us to recognize the way an object, as George D.B. Huberman argues, survives original use value and meaning, and nonetheless come back like a ghost at a particular historical moment. In short, it haunts. By examining the afterlife of a record, we find how, in the words of Catherine Biber, um, it acquires new and often competing attributes. Um, along these lines, the S21 photographs have long lost their significance as imbuing their subjects with criminality, but instead they haunt us with questions over what happened. And at each moment of crisis, they ask questions anew. And so to conclude, whether we see the S21 photographs as part of transitional archives or as part of an atrocity archive, the emphasis needs to be, I believe, on the way that they're consistently in becoming. This notion of the archive, this notion of the archive also aligns with the way that more critical approaches to the principle of inalienability and provenance works. Whereas one, would, one version of provenance would see the bureaucrats at S21 as uh, the origin, this fails to recognize the violence in this creation. Scholars working in colonial archives have instead argued that the subjects of the records should also be included as co-creators. As co-creators of the records, the persons whose photographs were taken have a stake in the archival process. <clears throat> this approach requires attention to the voices of the victims and their families in conversations about the photographs. When it comes to the S21 photographs, this is difficult as far from all have been identified. Whilst recognizing that the photograph subjects are co-creators of the records requires us to look beyond the state-centric notions of ownership, it does not mean necessarily, I think, that an NGO is necessarily a better or a more appropriate custodian, or certainly that the UN would be. It certainly does not mean that any Western company or a self-described artist has a claim to the photographs. Instead, it raises questions about the politics of victimhood and who gets to speak on behalf of those killed. This makes the question of provenance much more difficult, but also much more worthwhile because it requires the question to be revisited again and again. Thank you. Oh gosh, I wish I could clap. Um, thank you so much um, to both of you for two really brilliant presentations. Um, so while we give people some time to come up with questions, I guess I'll use my prerogative as chair. I think it's prerogative the word um, to ask both one question. So as I was listening to both, I had this 
um, and to put it in Maria's words, this sense of urgency to better understand who has the sense of urgency over the objects because it's the objects, whether those are, I don't know, uh, personal items or images, because it, what is clear, at least to me, is that their survival and their conservation is, is so important for so many people, but there's something intangible at the heart of the object, at the heart of the ownership and preservation um, that I'm just trying to make sense of it. So I was wondering if you could share a bit more about it. And just to give an example, um, so the archives, for example, of um, the Salvadoran Truth Commission, they're basically owned by the United Nations because, and they have this total ban. And that's sort of a gesture that keeps repeating and that Lucas has um, told us about Maria as well um, in both presentations. So um, it's not a proper question, but it's more if you can talk more about this tension and the politics around um, the preservation and the ownership of the objects. Um, so I think that there's a, when it comes to a lot of these objects, there's an affective quality to them, right? Like we are affected, affected by them and that sort of um, imbues us with a sense of community uh, with, with other visitors and with the objects themselves. And I think that that affective quality is not to be dismissed. So we shouldn't say, you know, like there, this is passive and it only belongs to them, but rather the critical question needs to be about the way that we engage with them and the way that this sort of raises further questions about uh, relating to the photos. Like, I think that some of the ways that uh, the preservation and conservation efforts in relation to the S21 photographs and the troll slang records, like they, like, yes, the, the records have been decaying due to time. So there is a need to restore them. Like that's not a pretended or something that should be dismissed, but that doesn't, that's very different from, you know, a self-taught Irish guy who decides that he needs to, to alter the images. Like that's a very different type of engagement, but perhaps it's driven by, you know, he was probably felt a sense of urge and need to engage with it. Um, and so rather than sort of dismissing that kind of urge, the question needs to be the way that we do it. Um, and the, I mean, the, 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 the difficulty for in relation to these archives and as well is the way that that engages in a very long and troubled history between Cambodia and the UN. Like that has a much, much longer and more difficult history. Um, that I'll not uh, bore you with at this point. Um. Sorry, I, I, I've been, I spent the last three minutes trying to figure out how, how to answer this question because there, there are many different angles from which to get to it. But let me start by saying that, yeah, I, I, the object itself is a focal point, right? And it, and it exists, of course. Um, but it, but fundamentally, it is a focal point for the way that people relate to it, right? Uh, so in many ways, uh, to use heritage terminology, right? Um, all heritage is fundamentally intangible, right? So it's not about the thing itself; it's about the way that you relate to it, and that's the that's what really creates value. Um, and then we get to the question of who gets to relate with it, and what are the limits of that relationship. Um, because it goes from everything, you know, from the, the the person who's actually named in the archives, the families of victims, uh, you know, survivors, 
to yeah random artists who, who decides to put smiles on things um and there's no clear-cut answer um because there's always this urge and that in many ways is part of the conservation paradigm uh, and i suppose it's the colonial part of the conservation paradigm right that says look yeah it, heritage belongs to everyone. Everyone should have access to it. Everyone should engage with those objects um, freely. Um, or what in, in a recent anti-colonization actually report by commissioned by the French government, they call a radical practice of sharing, right? Um, but, but then, so, so where I tend to put it, and I know it's a bit of a cop-out from someone who, who trained in a civil law tradition, but I, I tend to hinge the whole thing on on the idea of dignity, right? Um, so you, you can interact with the object as long as someone who is more closely related to it doesn't have their dignity impaired in the process. Um, so in many ways there are concentric circles, I suppose, of relationships. Uh, the object is at the center, but it doesn't have its own agency. And Jesse Holman would probably kill me if she heard me saying this. Um, but you know, the object is at the center and then you have the people who created or who are in the object somehow, right? Or in the photograph. And then you have the, pe the people who, who somehow are affected uh, by that thing. And then there's the people who just outside kind of interested like the Irish artist, right? So you have all these levels and then the, the, the outer layers kind of need to defer to the dignity of the inner layers, if that makes sense. Um, but that's something that the law in particular and UNESCO has been trying to come to terms with it took them about 15 years to come up with this idea uh, in the intangible cultural heritage context, which is a different treaty um, of the concentric circles around the community. Um, and it's still kind of being tested, but that's kind of where I tend to put things. Because um, yeah, even corpses will raise very different questions, right? Some museums will just treat them as an object of scientific interest um, to the point where skeletons are not even together in, in the museum, right? It's just a big drawer of femur, femurs, a, a big drawer of skulls. Uh, and so the, the, it's a dismembering, which of course will be really offensive for some, but it serves their pur purposes or their purported scientific purposes just fine. So it depends, yeah, it's all kind of relational, but uh, yeah, dignity, I think is that the, helps keep the concentric circle uh, in order. Yeah, maybe I can ask something, uh, <clears throat> even though, of course, I'm not an expert on heritage law, and uh, but this, you know, both presentation was so fascinating, and uh, um, um, I want. I was really struck by something Maria said, but also I think resonates with what Lucas um, uh, described, which is this idea of um, uh, transitional justice as constructing like a linear narrative, right? Or linear temporalities, actually, that was the expression you used. So the idea that we have to move forwards toward like a more democratic, more, you know, liberal societies. And uh, um, I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on how this uh, uh, concept of principle underpinning the field of transitional justice in a way, you know, relates with the work that museum and objects or, um, you know, photographs uh, do. Um, I know it's a <laughs> quite a big, broad question, but just, you know, to kind of bring forward the, also the role of law in all of the things that you have um, so wonderfully described and discussed. Right. Um, so we tend to assume, or 
you know, the, the popular discourse, I suppose, around heritage is that heritage protects our history, right? And therefore, that's one of the reasons why it should not be modified. That's one of the reasons why James Cook statues in Australia should be exactly where they are, uh, which is literally on a pedestal. Um, but I find that argument to be fallacious um, because I don't think that, herit that history is the objective of heritage, right? History is the instrument of heritage. But fundamentally, heritage is about projecting forward. Um, and that is not a popular view with heritage lawyers, even though it is facilitated by a key mechanism of heritage law, right? Which is the idea of non-retroactivity. Um, so the law doesn't retroact. Therefore, we don't really focus on the past of that heritage object. We clean that slate, which oftentimes is a very difficult, very um, contested history in favor of the status quo at the moment of that the law kicks in, that the law enters into force and that the heritage gets protected. Um, and then we just kind of move forward. So there is this tension, this ambivalence, right? This cherry picking of whether we're looking at the past or, or the future, um, but fundamentally, right? The, the legal mechanism itself is very for, forward looking um, in, in the same way that transitional justice tends to be forward looking, right? Um, which again, is not ignoring the past, but it is instrumentalizing the past to move forward, right? Um, and, and it's largely based on this idea that, that, that there's fundamentally no such thing as objective truth, right? Uh, so you can look at the past all you want, but you're never gonna get a full um, quote unquote absolute truth uh, of what happened, um, you're gonna have to fundamentally choose a narrative. So if you're gonna have to choose, let's choose the one that allows us to uh, move forward in a more productive sort of way. Um, and I don't know if I'm answering your question, I'm certainly dancing around it, uh, but that's kind of as far as I can push right now. I mean, I, th I think it, it is <clears throat> problematic in certain transitional justice discourses in which like the, the legal institution where, or whether it is a, a trial, a criminal trial, or whether it is a truth commission and it's sort of purported to lead to certain things and these certain things have been primarily depicted as you know, rule of law or liberal democracy and so on. <clears throat> and so the question then becomes, A, what happens if that is not the result? And B, is that necessarily a good thing always? Or what is the result? And so what I think is interesting in the Cambodian case is that we've had a number of legal, we've had cases, we've seen the legal institution and there is so much discussion that that has sort of brought up. And so now we're seeing this moment of assessment so assessments of the transitional justice mechanism and like Cambodia is not where this liberal democracy and therefore the legal institution has therefore somehow failed. Well, not necessarily, you know, that if we see instead the, the, the work that the legal institution is doing as part of creating an ongoing uh, archive, for instance, then it is something that is living and that we continue to engage with and that still in becoming. And I think that that can be a way forward um, thinking that's not necessarily this like pre, you know progressive linear narrative that I think is um, often quite difficult. Indeed, wow, well this is just getting started because it's we're getting to the heart of the thing. Um, but I'm I think we're a bit um, running out of time. Uh, well, we've gone over time, <laughs> not out of time, but it's been really fantastic. And um, to participants, thank you so much and for staying a few minutes longer. If you have um, questions, comments, do feel free. 
I'm just taking this freedom to say contact uh, Lucas and Maria. Um, their profiles are linked in um, in the in the series website. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, thank you so much for attending, and thanks so much to Maria and um, and Lucas. It's been really really wonderful to hear you, and thank you for bringing really important um, questions um, to us. So thank you so much. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.